Welcome to the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. I'm your host, Jeremy Richards, along with fellow U.S. immigration lawyer, Christine Jerusik. Today we're going to be talking about the immigrant visa process and how to petition for a immediate relative to come to the United States if you're a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident in some cases and the process of doing that. And it's broken down generally into three steps. At least when we talk to individuals about this process, I break it down into three easy steps so they understand what's going on. And the process that we're talking about is for people outside of the United States. So if you're not currently residing in the United States, you're trying to bring over a loved one. Typically, when we say loved one, that's an immediate relative. An immediate relative is a mother, father, a spouse, or a child and a child under 21 years old to come to the United States. You can also petition if you're a U.S. citizen, your brothers and sisters as well. Those take much longer, however. So we see much more sponsorship for a spouse or yeah, for a parent. that's probably the most common one. Parents and spouses. So if you're a U.S. citizen, you can sponsor your spouse or your parents to come to the United States. If you're a permanent resident, it's very limited. You can only sponsor a spouse or a minor child to come to the United States. And the first step of that process is done with what is called the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or what we refer to as USCIS. And you file what is called a petition, and the language is outdated, and they're trying to change this language, and it is, I've always found it kind of odd, but a petition for alien relative. I, I refer to it as a petition for a foreign. Foreign relative is how I talk about it. So if you have a foreign relative who is not a U.S. citizen and you want to bring them to the country, you file what is called Form I-130 with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And the purpose of Form I-130 is to designate your relationship as a qualifying relationship for an immigration benefit. And that's what they call visas and green cards that you gain through the U.S. immigration system. They call them benefits. So the immigration benefit here that you'd be trying to obtain is an immigrant visa through the consulate, but then ultimately when you enter the United States, a green card, the, the valued green card, which would then lead to citizenship later on. So when you file that petition for a foreign relative with USCIS, the burden is on you to establish that this relationship is what is called bona fide. And bona fide means real. In other words, is this a relationship, if it's with a spouse, that you entered into out of love? Or did you just enter into this relationship to get an immigration benefit? The burden is lesser for a parent or a child. Those relationships are more, are more obvious and easier to prove than so, a spouse. So, sometimes they're not, though, depending on the documentation you have available to you. So... Birth certificates um, prove a lot, but if the birth certificate isn't for some reason questioned, you know, it was registered really late after the child was born. Depending on what country you're yeah, from. Yeah, that can complicate the situation. So, And if your parents were married or unmarried, did you live with your father? Did you not? Yeah, and the, the, the thing to remember with this application type is that everything is done based on documents. There's no opportunity for an interviewer for them to talk to you at this point in the application process. So your documentation is what's going to show them that this relationship is a legitimate and valid relationship. It's administrative law. Right. So your documents are what prove the point and your documents are what are the important thing at this point. 
Yes. So it's important that those documents also meet the requirements because they will only accept certain types of documents. Uh, for Canadians, for example, Canadians are, are uh, infamous for this. They you're Canadian, so you know this better than yeah, I. Yeah, when you're born, you when you're only born, get, you just a, get a little card. Right. You get a, your birth certificate is really, it's like a, a wallet sized card that you carry around with you. Um, but that's not what they need at USCIS. So it's lacking information. So that card doesn't have the names of parents and other identifying information that they need to determine who you, who, who you are. It says, yeah, you were born in Canada. This is your name. This is your birth date. But they need what is called your long form birth certificate. So little things like that, that will be required to determine whether or not the proper relationship exists. And if you're talking about a relationship with a spouse, that's when it gets more complicated. They want to see relationship evidence that you, in fact, live together, that you, in fact, are in a spousal relationship. And there are certain forms of evidence that are much stronger than others. And I think the, the holy grail of all evidence, in my opinion, and I've had officers tell me this to my face, is a child. If you have a child together, the officer are like, yeah, they're, they're married. They have a child together. Um, does it mean it's a slam dunk just because you have a child together? No, but having children together is seen as something that a bona fide couple will do. Right. And you got to keep in mind, too. So a lot of new couples, newlyweds, don't have a lot of this evidence in place they don't have a, a child already. or even they don't second have, marriages or third marriages. They yeah, may they, not have children together either. And we see a lot of those. Right. So if you're newly married and maybe you haven't even lived together yet. Yep. Um, when I filed my own personal application of this nature, uh, we didn't have a lot of evidence that we were living together because we had never lived together before. So there's other evidence that you need to provide in that, in that instance that can show your relationship um, and that, even though you're not necessarily living in the same place. Yeah, and, and we see a lot of same-sex marriages as well. And, and in those situations, it, it'd be difficult to prove that uh, or to have children. Sometimes you adopt. Maybe you don't have children at all. So not everyone is able to do that, obviously. Uh, if you do, great evidence. Uh, and the longer you've been married, the easier it is going to be for you to provide this evidence. So new marriages are very difficult. Traditional marriages are very difficult, like you said. People that never lived together and then all of a sudden got married. Well, it's hard to put together evidence of a joint marriage if you've never lived together. In some instances, it may make sense just to wait a little while after your marriage to then file because then you can collect evidence. But that doesn't always work for everybody. Uh, everybody wants to be together as soon as possible, and they want to spend. Yeah. They don't want to spend time apart. <clears throat> and some of this evidence you can generate, you know, once you're married. So. A lot of evidence that we like to ask for is financial in nature. And um, now what I say is the second best evidence right there is what you just hit, financial, joint finances. They love joint finances. Too. Right. So if you can add your spouse to your bank account or get a credit card on their account, something along those lines also will really act in your favor as good evidence of that relationship. And then other joint uh, accounts as well or joint matters such as a joint lease. They love joint leases, mm -hmm. uh, a joint rental agreement, joint insurance. ownership of property, insurance, uh, health insurance, life insurance, wills. Yeah, wills um, are great, especially for um, couples maybe that this is a second or third relationship and they maybe don't want to join their finances. If you get a will in each other's names and or, or a healthcare proxy, that can be good evidence of the relationship as well. And there are other little things that you can come up with too. One I like to tell people to get are... Uh, you know, everybody has 
you, you have your doctor and at your doctor you, you will list your spouse uh, under your contact information or even at your employer you can list who your spouse is at your employer little things like that that people don't often think of even junk mail that comes to your house if it comes in both names or you're both receiving mail at the same address and you can show that you have mail at the same address utility bills all of these things when put together will prove that you have a relationship that this is bona fide that you actually live together and i'm going to debunk some evidence that a lot of people think is the best and that is photographs people say well i have thousands of photographs well i could sit here with christine and we could take photographs together <laughs> and say that hey look we're married doesn't mean we're married just because we have photographs <laughs> together and we could change our clothes and go to a different location we see that a lot <laughs> we had didn't you have one recently where yeah, it was obvious that this couple was changing clothes and taking different pictures in the same location. In the same yeah. location, and they put same on, time frame. Yeah, they put on uh, <laughs> they put on the robe and stood in front of their Christmas tree. Changed their yeah, they had the same shoes on underneath, but the clothes on top yeah, were they changing. They had their short and t-shirt <laughs> underneath their robe. So, you know, manufactured evidence like that. If if we see that it's false, the officer is not going to have any trouble picking that out, and it's much better to present a minimal amount of realistic evidence, then try to manufacture evidence of that nature. It's just going to get you in trouble. Yeah, so photographs are eh, way at the bottom of the list. Uh, if you can come up with this other evidence, it's seen as much more concrete. And then when you don't live together, and we see a lot of this where you, one spouse is in the U.S. and one's in a foreign country, that, even makes, that makes it even more difficult. And I just had one approved through Mexico this week, actually, and they've been apart their entire marriage. Um, and it was her second marriage, his first marriage. So no children together. She has children at this point. They don't have joint finances at this point. They don't have a joint lease at this point. They don't have anything in both their names because one's living in Mexico and one's living in the United States. And we see those a lot with Canada and other countries too. One spouse is here. One spouse is there. So what do you do? Well, in these cases, he's visited a lot and she's visited him a lot. So you have your passport, your passport stamps. You have your proof of your airline tickets visiting back and forth. You have proof of hotel stays together. And in this case, you would have photographs in, in Mexico and in the United States visiting Niagara Falls, things like that, that back up those visits back and forth to each other. And other proof of gifts given back and forth. Also finances, people will send money to each other. So if it's your spouse, you may be supporting them in another country right. and they're sending them money, you know, to another country. Yeah. And so the point really is that, you know, every relationship's different. And so your relationship may have different evidence from another relationship, but usually if the re relationship is legitimate and bonafide, then you can put together a package of evidence that's going to convince the officer that your relationship is not fraudulent. Um, it's not difficult to do, but you just want to make sure you submit the correct uh, evidence and the correct amount of evidence to to make that argument. So after USCIS is satisfied, let's say they review the evidence and they they approve it, what will happen is they will forward the approval to what is called the National Visa Center, and that's where you get to the second step in this process. The National Visa Center is central processing for all the immigrant visa cases all over the entire world. And really what National Visa Center does is they do document verification. So USCIS, and people get confused because you do submit a lot of the same documents to USCIS and NVC, but they're 
purposes are different. USCIS, right, and sometimes sometimes USCIS accepts a document and then NVC rejects, rejects it, it. Yep. and clients are confused. Well, they ex- already accepted this birth certificate. They already accepted this um, you know, piece of evidence and you have to say to them, well, it's a, it's a different agency now that we're dealing with and they have a different standard. And they're looking for a different thing, right? USCIS is just looking for the bona fide relationship. So if they accept a birth certificate may just be, oh, okay, he's a U.S. citizen. Okay. He's a U.S. citizen. Therefore he can sponsor his spouse who's not. And then, okay, now I'm going to look at the bona fides approved. And they may not go beyond that other than verifying that there's a legitimate marriage certificate there too. Right. So the standard of review is different. Yep. They're looking for bona fide relationship. MVC is now looking for something different. USCIS has already said the relationship is bona fide. MVC is now going to verify that the documents, the biographic documents, in other words, the marriage certificate, the birth certificates, any divorce decrees, any death certificates, uh, passports, visas, all of these items are legitimate. And they verify it against what's called the visa reciprocity schedule. Every country has documents that meet the standards. And you need to make sure that the document you're submitting meets the standard of proof that the National Visa Center expects and if you don't they will reject your documentation and they are very picky and they take forever (laughs) yeah they i mean we've had documents rejected because they were uploaded um with you know sideways yeah just the orientation was wrong or Or, a little corner was cut off with no printing on it at all but they didn't see the entire document um, and they've rejected that document or a small part was illegible Right. It has to be perfectly yeah. legible. Don't send in don't send in photos document. of your documents. You oh, gotta get a, a good scan and a good resolution scan in order for them to accept it because if they take one look at it and they don't like it, they, all they do is reject it and then you gotta go through the process. And this is also the stage where two other things come into play that weren't required in the first step. And that is proof of what is called domicile or intent to domicile, and also proof of sponsorship, financial sponsorship. And that's where this check goes. It comes into play is at the National Visa Center. They're going to verify that the that the petitioner, in other words, the U.S. citizen sponsor, has enough financial means to support the foreign spouse or foreign relatives, and that's either through U.S. based income or through assets. You, you know, you might have retirement accounts, savings accounts, uh, property, whatever it might. They're going to do a check of that to make sure you have enough finances. And in addition to that, they want to verify domicile. We run into this a lot too, the domicile and asset issues with couples that jointly reside outside of the country because they want to verify that you have U.S.-based income or you have a U.S. domicile or intent to domicile. So if you're not living in the United States, it could make that problematic for some couples. So... It's important to be able to document that either through, again, having a U.S.-based income, having savings or assets. And in some cases, it may mean that you have to get a joint sponsor. In other words, a U.S. citizen or U.S. permanent resident who is able to step in and provide financial sponsorship. And when it comes to domicile, they want to make sure that you are that the petitioner has a residence or a place to live in the United States. And if not then you can overcome it by showing your intent. 
to right, I mean, jointly come to the United States upon approval. And it only makes sense because the whole purpose of this process is to is for family reunification. So it's to bring family members together, U.S. citizen and foreign family members together. If the U.S. citizen is not residing in the United States, how are they reunifying anybody? Yeah. So, And it's also your intent should be to permanently move to the United States. Correct. And I think this is where most of the people are weeded out in the process. They get the I-130 approved through USCIS and they think, oh, I'm good, I'm good. No, you're not done yet. MVC's harder. This step is where they really verify your documentation and verify your intent and they verify your assets and and, and your domicile. Dom and all yeah. of these things come into play. And if you can't prove those things, then you're not moving past the National Visa Center. And we see a lot of people whose cases stall here. Mm -hmm. This is where um, the scrutiny is really applied. Um, and they want to verify that these things do check out. If they do, and you're able to provide all the evidence to the NBC that they request, then they will do what is called documentary qualification. They will documentarily qualify your case. Once it's been documentarily qualified, they will then notify the consulate of the country where you're at that your case is ready to process. And then the consulate will then notify you upon the next available interview. And that's where you go to step three in the process, what we call consular processing. So the consulate will receive that notification and then they will then forward a list of instructions. So now you're onto your third step agency three, right. <laughs> asking for more documentation. Um, and once you get here, you are pretty much done. If you can get to the consular processing stage and you get your consular interview, don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah, there's USCIS ways to mess that up. <laughs> I wouldn't say up. I wouldn't say you're done at that point. You can mess it up, yeah. <laughs> but you've already been approved by USCIS and NVC. They've already approved your relationship. They've already approved your domicile. They've already approved your your finances. You're good to go. Now it's in-person interview at the consulate where they're going to verify everything that you have, that it's authentic, that the story lines up. And then at that point, they'll issue you what's called your immigrant visa. So very important here. And they also verify that you're admissible to the United States. So, so that's an important point as well. Exactly. And that's one thing we left out of the MVC stage is your background checks. Right. You, you have to get background checks from the places that you live throughout the world. Um, other than the United States, to verify that you do not have a criminal record. And then also at the, this consular processing stage, they will then notify you to go to a what is called a civil surgeon and obtain a medical evaluation to make sure that you are not inadmiss inadmissible for medical I'm reasons I'm going to correct either. you there. It's actually called a panel physician now. Oh, outside. In the U.S., <laughs> they're called civil surgeons. Right. Outside the U.S., they're called panel physicians. So they will. you cannot go to your own doctor and that's what people right. say well can't i just go to my oh i just had a medical last week i'll just use that nope that's nope. not how it works you have to go to a specific doctor make an appointment with them and they're going to complete a many page form in order to submit to the consulate on your behalf um, of your it's medical important status. you disclose everything here right vaccinations are very important so if you also maybe a criminal background could come into play what if oh, you had yeah, a dui right. in the past what if you had maybe messed around with some marijuana in your past and you have a conviction that's decades old well you you may have to just you have to disclose that you're supposed right, so to th disclose so, that so that alcohol use and the drug use can be considered a medical condition 
Um, and the doctor may need to clear you for that. So you got to be careful there. Um, you're make sure you went through the proper counseling and got the proper treatment right. so that um, you're admissible to the United States. So uh, that medical is very important. And if you show up at the interview, and we've seen this happen where somebody didn't disclose something during their medical, but then they show up to the interview and then something in their past shows up very recently on their their criminal check. Yeah, I had a client who went to the interview and had not disclosed that he'd had a minor, I think a marijuana possession from way back when he was a young guy. Which in and of itself doesn't make you inadmissible. No, it doesn't. But he didn't disclose it during the process. He completed his form work and he didn't say anywhere that he'd had a criminal conviction. He was under the impression because it was sealed that it was no longer on his record. But they knew about it at the consulate and they asked him, um, and he, he just, he was like, oh yeah, I remember. Yep. Yep. I did have a marijuana possession back when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, and what happened is they said, okay, that's fine. It doesn't make you inadmissible to the United States, but we need you to go back to your doctor and get a new form completed, disclosing that you no longer have a drug use issue. So he, he's in the process now of trying to get that but now you got to find evidence. a doctor who's going to sign off on and it. He's right? having a hard time finding a doctor that's going to sign off. So, um, you know, it's much better to be honest and upfront at the beginning because he, we could have confronted that issue if he disclosed it to us. But it was we were kind of blindsided with it at the end of the process there. And that's another thing that you just brought up: expunged and sealed criminal records. They need to be disclosed, and most often. They have a record of it, even though it's been sealed or expunged, and they will know about it. So people think that, oh, I was a minor. It was sealed. I don't need to disclose that. It's it's out of my past. Not true. You need to disclose it, and they will know about it. So if you don't disclose it, you could be it could be seen as fraud because you're trying to obtain an immigration benefit by deception, by not telling them about your criminal past. So it's very important to be honest, to disclose everything and to address it properly. If you don't, it can have major consequences. So the consular interview, um, when you show up, this is at the USCIS stage and the NVC stage, it's all done by mail and electronically. Nothing is done in person. Well, the consular stage is in person. And that's where you need to bring all of your documentation with you. All of the originals. People show up to those interview and they don't bring anything. They're going to turn you away and tell you to come back. Or even if you're just missing one document, they'll refuse to issue your visa. They'll send you home and they'll say, okay, now here's the process. You can send in that document. We're going to keep your passport. They can keep your passport for months and months. And you send in your document. Uh, We get calls all the time from people that say, I sent this in three weeks ago, six weeks ago, and they still haven't sent my passport. Uh, You're at their mercy. So. Show up with it in the first place and bring it all with you. Exactly. So they they can issue that visa for you. And some common things we see that people fail to do is bring originals. They, they want to see the original birth certificates. They want to, or certified copies. There's only, and you follow closely follow those consular instructions. They'll tell you what to bring. Um, Also, let's say you filed your case two years ago and it's been pending. And with COVID, you see a lot of this where it's been pending. Excessive amount of time, right? right? Um, make sure you have current tax returns. So if your sponsor's tax return was from 2018 and it's now 2020, they want to see 2019 and 2020. So you need to bring the updated document. Your relationship too. This is another huge one. If your spouse filed your I-130 petition 
two, three years ago and they verified your relationship then, well, chances are that you have three years of new evidence to provide. Maybe you even had a child in that time period. Who knows what's happened in that last three years? They want to see you fill in that gap at the interview. So don't assume that since USCIS and NBC has already approved these things that the consulate's not going to check up. No, they are. That's exactly the reason to have the interview is for you to show up in person to verify all this documentation. They're going to verify the finances. They're going to verify the relationship. They're going to make sure everything checks out before they issue what is called, in the end, an immigrant visa. And that immigrant visa is typically valid for up to six months. And that gives you six-month time period from the issuance of that immigrant visa to then officially immigrate to the United States. And upon Entering the United States on that immigrant visa, you will notify USCIS that you've entered the country. They'll have you fill out a form and pay a fee. And then within typically within 30 to 60 days, you will receive your green card by mail to the U.S. address you provide at that point. And then you will be officially a U.S. permanent resident. Now, on that note, once you enter the United States... You are immigrating to the United States. Right, that your next entry to the U.S. after you receive that visa is going to be as an immigrant to the U.S. So your intent not, should be to come to live, right. to work, to go to school. To, your life should now be primarily in the United States. Right, and you can come into the U.S. and if you haven't tied up all your loose ends in your home country, you can leave immediately. But that entry makes you a, a permanent resident of the United States and you're subject to all the requirements Paying of maintaining taxes, that at that more point. Than 50% From of that your time point in the forward, US, yeah. right? Bank account, job, home. Th- this is when right. So there's no just coming in to claim your green card and then going back home. Now home is the United States. Once you make that entry, and that's the ex- expectation at that point. And there are ways if things come up where you can spend time outside of the United States. But at this point, your intent should be to come to live permanently in the United States. It is not designed for you to have this U.S. status that you can just take advantage of whenever you want to show up. Right, and we get calls from permanent residents all the time that are residing outside the United States, and I ask them, uh, so when was the last time you were in the U.S.? And they always say, oh, well, I visited for two weeks back in November. At that point, once you're a permanent resident, your visits are things you do outside the country, and your home Correct. is inside the yes, United States. So you need to change your mindset. Now home is the U.S. and everything you do outside is a visit. Yes. Yeah. So it would be, I've been visiting Canada for 10 months. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not the other way around. Correct. Yeah. The mindset, the mindset is incorrect there. And we see this a lot, a lot, a lot. I can't say that enough where people think that, hey, I'm just going to get this green card. I'm going to put it in my back pocket and I'm going to save it for a rainy day. That's yeah. And not when I go to works. Florida in the winter, I'm going to use my green card to to enter the United States for, for a few weeks or six weeks when I come down to Florida. And nope. if that's your intent, just do it. As a Canadian, especially, you can spend up to six months a year in the United States without the need of a green card and the obligations that come along with it. If you want to spend half your time in Canada and half your time in the U.S., well, then do it. You can do that as a Canadian. Just don't spend over six months in the United States and you're fine. Um, But don't just get a green card for that purpose. You're going to complicate matters for yourself and then create obligations that you might not be able to keep. Yeah. And this is just part of the overarching um, way that the immigration of both Canada and the United States and other countries think of their 
nationality and their permanent residence is that you're one or the other. Yep. You're not, you're not both, even though you can hold what that doesn't happen until you're a dual citizen. Yep. Citizenship is where you can live your life like that. Not at the permanent residence stage. Permanent residence is the first step in that. Once you get that, it can lead to citizenship, mm-hmm. but depending on how you got it, it can take either th- uh, three or up to five years to get uh, citizenship in the U S but yeah, once you're a citizen, then you're golden. You right. can spend as much time outside. the That's US when you you're want. dual. When you're a permanent resident of the United States, you need to keep in mind that that's your primary residence from then on. Thank you for joining us today. If you haven't already, please subscribe where you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us a thumbs up and a five-star rating. And most importantly, tune in next time to the Arrive podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians.